What if the speed of light was 30 miles an hour? What if Earth had two suns? Which cereal mascot would win in a what fight? What if everyone lived underground? What if, it rained what if money grew what on if trees? What if pigs could fly? I don't know if that would actually happen. It's much easier to store a unicycle than to store a horse. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Guys, in, the, in these troubling times lately, in this, in this past year of lots of sick people, I guess, my favorite phrase is the pandemic, <laughs> or the pandangit, which was, was the one that I liked. <laughs> it's been tough to feel connected with some people sometimes, especially people who are far away. So today's episode is all about being connected. And our question is, what if all the continents were connected? What if there were no big oceans between us? Literally, all the continents are just smooshed together like the infamous Pangaea continent of old. There are still bodies of water in like there are lakes and stuff and rivers. Ah, yes. But just no ocean breaking up the continents. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So all the ocean is just around and then you have your Pangaea-esque landmass in the middle and i'll go ahead and get us started because it took me a while to figure something out that was actually going to be like you know for our purposes drastically different between like a really big landmass like a continent and a really really big landmass like a bunch of continents smushed together and so where i ended up is there's going to be one what i consider to be a significant difference between the makeup of our pangea-esque landmass and the current earth and that's the amount of coastline we're going to have because as you combine lots of separate things into one thing, you reduce the amount of perimeter you have. Like, if you take a square and each side is, like, you know, one foot long, you got four feet of perimeter going around. But if you just cut it into quarters, you got four little squares with half foot sides, and you end up with eight feet of perimeter, basically doubling the amount of, you know, perimeter or shoreline that you would have. But the same area. But you have the same, area, same like, land area, yeah. So as you, you know, separate into smaller bits, you have more shoreline around those little bits. So if you take everything, put it together, and, and I t the way I interpret this, I took just no islands, no anything, everything is in this big landmass. So currently, depending on who you ask, if you ask the CIA, they'll tell you that the Earth has 356,000 kilometers worth of coastline. If you ask the United States Defense Mapping Agency, you have 1.64 million kilometers of coastline that's a big which difference. you may notice is somewhat different <laughs> one of them is a more difference. than four times more than the other one <laughs> for something that should be a pretty stable number so first i was trying to figure out what the hell this was i was just wondering if maybe the cia didn't decide to count all the countries or something because they just were rounding things off and it turns out there's actually like a they call it the the shoreline they, they call it a paradox but basically, it depends on how you measure a coastline, because it's not a straight line. A coastline is jagged. And if you, you know, are measuring up and down along the jagged coastline, you end up with more distance. Like if you have just one straight line, it's going to be, you know, a shorter total distance than if you have a jagged line going across, you know, between those two points. So as you measure a coastline in finer and finer detail, the measured length of your coastline goes up and up and up again. So if you go to, you know, if you measure it in an infinite amount of detail, you have an infinite amount of coastline. So mathematically, yeah, it's a paradox. Practically, I don't think it's a paradox. I think just some mathematicians have are very excited about something that they can say goes to infinity. What <laughs> they should do is just pick a, you know, resolution to measure coastlines by and just stick with it. And then everyone has the same numbers, but they don't. So for my purposes, I'm calling it 
an even million is my baseline amount. One million kilometers is my baseline point for how much coastline we have, because you can apparently just make up the freaking number. So that includes like all land masses right now in, in the world? Yeah, that includes all land masses. That's all the all the islands, all the you know, all the shores, peninsulas, you know, yada yada yada. Even like it even like counts up into bays and things a certain amount until it hits fresh water. So a million miles, a million kilometers, sorry, of coastline is what the current world has. The total land mass of the world is 150 million square kilometers. So if we put everything together and make that a square, which is kind of like a pretty much bottom of the barrel estimate to get like a minimum amount of coastline, we end up with 12,000 kilometers of coastline instead of a million. We can pretty safely like triple that number to account for one, the jaggedness and whatever not squaredness we would have. You know, there would still be, you know, peninsulas and shores and, you know, bits that stick out and add coastline as you go around. Any imperfection is going to add coastline. So I took my 12,000. I just went ahead and tripled it to get 36,000 miles, uh, kilometers of coastline. God, I should have just switched it all <laughs> to freaking miles. miles. <laughs> <laughs> but nope, I'm in metric. You know, we, we no longer isolated our own continent, so we have to play nice with all the, the yeah, rest of the world. That we're the minority things. now. Yeah, that measures things in metric. I gotta, I gotta conform. So we have basically just 3.6% compared to the coastline we have now, which means it's going to be way less beaches than the current earth. That sucks. Plus, probably a good half of that coastline is going to be too far north, like in cold areas and climates that you're not going to get much use out of it anyway. So kind of just get an idea of like what the, like if you're going to try to buy a nice like, little beach house on this in uh, Pangea land, kind of get an idea of what you're looking at. Like the, the current average price for a house in the United States is uh, $281,000. The average price for a beach house is about 400000 So you're, pay- you're paying a good 60% premium to get onto a beach house. But if there's going to be so f- many fewer beaches, you're going to be basically paying for the premium beach spots. If you look at the top 10, you know, premium beach towns, those average home prices are in the millions, 1.4 million for like the 10th largest beach town, uh, the 10 most expensive beach town. So, you know, if you're going to try and live on this beach, first off, it's going to be very expensive. And there's going to be so much fewer beaches that there's still going to be people that are going to want to go to the beach. So it's going to be incredibly expensive and crowded. So take that, take it off the side. Is there anything else going on at your beach here? And yeah, there's two things that are going to also change in our Pangea world. And the first one is there's going to be some pretty sick waves, dude. There's going to be big waves. And here's why. There are three factors that affect the height of an ocean wave. It's wind speed wind duration, and what they call the fetch. So wind speed and duration are pretty self-explanatory. Wind speed is just how fast the wind is blowing on the water that's causing the wave. Wind duration is how long it's blowing on that. And the fetch is kind of the total distance on which you have a wind blowing in one direction. So if you have like a big wind kind of like a big wind formation that's like, you know, kind of, it's blowing, you know, you have an easterly that's blowing east for hundreds and hundreds of miles. That's going to have a lot longer fetch than, you know, if it's blowing east for, you know, 10 miles and it's blowing west after that, that's going to mess with your wave height. That's going to reduce your wave height. So if you have consistent winds for longer times at faster speeds, your waves get bigger and bigger and bigger. So are the wind speeds going to be higher or lower in our cool Pangea-esque planet? So the, the fastest wind speeds on 
the current Earth, outside like extreme events like tornadoes and things, kind of like the most, the highest consistent wind speeds are in the Southern Pacific Ocean. And this is primarily as a result of there being little to no land at this latitude to interrupt the formation of these global winds going all the way around. And, you know, citation needed here, but I pulled out of an article that the sailors refer to the southern latitudes as the roaring 40s, the raging 50s, and the screaming 60s. <laughs> <laughs> With the, uh, the 60th latitude line on the, in the southern hemisphere has, can have sustained wind speeds that just exceed 100 miles per hour, like, not uncommonly. So, winds be blowing down there. And this is because there's really not any land interrupting that. You have, like, Australia a little bit, and, you know, the, the, the southern tips of South America, and maybe a little bit of Africa, but there's, it's basically ocean going all the way around. And since all our land is together, all in one spot, we have a very big interrupted ocean. Like, doing some rough geometry, the, the screaming 60s latitude offers about 12,500 miles of runway for these winds to build up. At the equator in our Pangaea world, if we say the land takes up about 30% of the conference because 30% of the surface area is land, we end up with about 17,000 miles of runway over the 12,000. So we, we end up about 40% higher um, in runway. So just from that, we can already infer the wind speeds are going to be higher, but there's going to be a bit more contributory wave size. And that is what they call the Pangean Mega Monsoon. So badass name. What is it? What is a monsoon? Because this is something I did not know I didn't know. I thought I knew what a monsoon was. I didn't. A monsoon is often mischaracterized by people like me as a single event, like a big, super rainy storm. Maybe it floods a place, gets on the news, and you're like, oh man, the monsoon hit. That's not what a monsoon is. <laughs> Actually, a monsoon is just a description for a big seasonal cycle with a wet period and a dry period. So they're generally a result of differences in the specific heat capacity of land versus water. So land heats up a lot faster in the sun. So during the summer, the land heats up faster. Um, it gets hotter than the ocean, which is better at absorbing the heat. Or, you know, heats up slower because it's better at absorbing it. And that's going to result in a lower air pressure above the land because it's hotter. The ocean stays cooler and it stays at a higher pressure. And this pressure differential is what causes the wind to blow inland from the ocean. So that's if you're ever at the beach in the summer, there's basically like you can feel that kind of constant wind coming off the ocean towards the land. So that's like a local effect, but basically the the overarching cycle of this happening is what's defined as a monsoon. And the reason the monsoon is then wet is the cooler air coming up, hitting the land coming up, that ends up inducing conditions that are like good for rain. In the winter, this whole system is reversed. If you go to the beach in the winter, you're going to feel the breeze coming at your back towards the ocean because now the land is cooling faster than the water, the water's warmer, and the wind's going in the reverse direction. So on our Pangaea Earth, basically we take these monsoon effects, which are kind of, you know, they're, they're, you hear about them, so it's more extreme in some areas than others, but it's generally modest. But when you take all the land and put it in one spot, you're going to have effectively extreme periods of rain and dry and it's going to be worst around the equator because that that's kind of be where it's most stable because you have the you know you have the Coriolis effects of things spiraling in the northern southern hemispheres but the equator is kind of where things are most stable and so this effect is going to be at its maximum so kind of to get an idea of how much effect this would have I compared it to the actual Pangean mega monsoon which they've done some studies 
And the current theory is that the monsoon season in Pangaea was so extreme that the equatorial areas of Pangaea, right in the in the middle, would be basically uninhabitable because for half the year they would get so little moisture that they would basically be a desert. And even when you had the rainy seasons in the winter, it would just be it wouldn't be enough to sustain anything. You would just basically have deserts through the center of Pangaea. So basically, where as far as it goes to can I get myself a beach house? Is it going to be nice going to the beach? Yeah, the beach is going to be nice because the deserty effect, uh, it affects the inland portion. It, the actual coastline itself is going to get the rains. It's going to be a bit more stable where that interface is. It basically just stops anything from the ocean to getting further inland. So the coastline is going to be the only nice place to stay near the equator. So now your property values are going even higher and higher up because there's nowhere else to live on your Pangaea in the middle. But also, the waves are going to be huge, so you're kind of caught between a, a, a dry, wet place, sorry, a hot, dry, you know, dry, a hot, dry place, <laughs> and a, a big, wet place. Oh, man, that metaphor didn't go anywhere. I'm not, I'm not happy about it, dude. Heard, it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I, was going, I was going for a rock and a hard place, and I ended up with a hot, a hot place and a wet place, with the wet place being a big wave, and the hard place being a dry place. I don't know. You said, like, <laughs> I think you changed your your places a bunch you said like four or five different places there were a lot of places and none of them sounded good <laughs> yeah one of those is the metaphorical rock and one of them is the metaphorical hard place <laughs> unfortunately not... a lot of them were damp i don't know i <laughs> something is wet something is hot <laughs> and that is my conclusion any questions <laughs> lots but none that i want you to answer <laughs> good then it's your turn <laughs> Ben, cool. what did you look into? So I, I looked more specifically at Pangea because I wanted to figure out, one, just what Pangea actually, you know, looked like and, and how that would affect how humanity kind of came about. I guess that's kind of it. That was that was one and two. I put them both into one. You got you got a bonus one there. So first things first, what does Pangea look like? Because we all looked at maps, but you listen to a podcast probably aren't because you're like on a bus or something. Who knows? So Pangea is, you know, at a high level just... All of the the continents smushed together, but it's actually slightly more complicated than that because things didn't necessarily because of the way the place were laid out didn't necessarily go smoothly. So it kind of looks like a big like crescent roll, or I guess it could be just a crescent moon. But apparently, I want pastries right now. <laughs> crescent is also just a shape. It in is just a crescent. Way. Yeah, it is a shape. You made me hungry immediately when you said that, though. Yeah, I know. I'm actually not hungry. I I just ate right before this. I had tacos. Anyway, you can be envious of my tacos. <laughs> follow follow me on my food block. <laughs> yep. Uh, but so sort of at the the like northern tip, you have China, most of like the Asian, you know, like Pacific, other Asian countries, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, part of Indonesia a tiny bit of India and it kind of wraps around through Russia and Europe. And you get to this big middle chunk is basically just North and South America and Africa all like sort of pushed together the way it looks like they should line up. If you sort of imagine them with uh, the like, you know, sort of chunk of the middle East that wasn't up there by uh, Russia and whatnot. And it sort of goes down as you travel to the Southern sort of point of the Crescent, you hit like India and the last little chunk of China Antarctica, and then Australia down at the very end. And obviously this is, you know, this is going to change a lot of things, right? A lot of places are moving. And more importantly, because everything is sort of shifted around like this, the way that the land is distributed isn't the same. So I was trying to figure out sort of 
how things got redistributed and the easiest way I could do it because I didn't want to literally go and like track each country and figure out their sizes and replace them because I don't have that much time was basically to divide the planet into chunks of longitudes and latitudes. So I sort of took like using third degree chunks of each. So each chunk was like 30 degrees of latitude and 30 degrees of uh, longitude. And just figured out how much of those chunks was in each band of latitude. So you, you had latitude, longitude, longitude. Someone already did this, Ben. You, this, is, this isn't something you invented. Someone already No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying I was like taking those <laughs> and dividing up the planet that way to see where things got redistributed to, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, <laughs> I just felt like you were explaining, like, I invented latitude, longitude for this podcast. I, I did not invent those. I want to make that perfectly clear. I, I laid no claim to longitude or latitude. If I had invented them, I would have made the names much more different so we didn't have to make every second grader spend like a week remembering which one is which. Latitude ladder. Latitude is the ladder. That's the only way to remember them. There's your, your mnemonic. <laughs> anyway, when I looked at this, for the most part, things were the same. So if you look at groups of 30 degrees, you have six groups. And for the most part, you have four to there's like one with seven chunks in each. The one weird thing is that currently with normal Earth, the 60 or I guess 30 to 60 degrees south only has one of those chunks in it. And I, I couldn't I couldn't like believe that for a second. But basically all that is in that like 30 degrees of the planet is just like half of Chile, Argentina, the tip of Africa and like a quarter of Australia. And that's it. The rest is all water. It's ridiculous. I don't know how, how it went up that way. But with Pangea, conveniently... Basically, every other chunk loses one, or every other, like, band of latitude loses one chunk, and all of those go to that one band of 60 to 30 degrees south, uh, sort of conveniently. And this works out very well, because, as Marcus mentioned, a lot of the middle of Pangea is going to wind up being basically unlivable, and conveniently, a large amount of that land got relocated to an area that should hopefully be more livable. Now, the one thing we do have to figure out still is, is there actually a link between latitude and population? The assumption here is that there is, because latitude is going to affect your, your climate. The closer you are to the equator, the more hot it's going to be, and the you know less likely that you're going to have an easy time living there, basically. And the you know, further away, it's going to be cold and impossible to live there. So that makes sense logically, but I want to actually see how true it, it, it played out. So I found, basically, someone had made this really cool like interactive infographic where they plotted the world's population by latitude and longitude. And then you could choose one of them and have it turn like a bar graph for each, you know, the area between each degree. And I went in and pulled out all that data and just, you know, pulled out and do it like, like a, a spreadsheet. Oh boy. Someone let Ben have data. This is no good. <laughs> I actually, I looked for a long time for someone who already did this. And I eventually just did it myself going through each line one by one and pulling them out into a spreadsheet manually. I have a problem. I made my own data this time. Giggling every time you're giggling as you move shells around the spreadsheet. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> and in some ways the results were kind of what you would expect. So if you look at, for example, the 60 and 90 bands on North and South, there's basically no one there. 60 and 90 South, it's just Antarctica. There's like four researchers there and a bunch of penguins or polar bears. That's why they call it the screaming 60s. That <laughs> is not, not true. 60 and 90 North has a little bit more, but it's still only like 16 million people or something out of, you know, 7.3 billion. 
What is weird is that it is very unevenly distributed in that middle section. So almost all the people live between 60 and 60 degrees latitude. But 86% of all people live between 0 and 60 north. And only, you know, 13% are between 0 and 60 south. Yes, there is more landmass in the north and the south. But it's, it's, you know around like a little over half as uh or twice as much land mass it's not you know that huge huge discrepancy there and the answer the reason that it's such a huge discrepancy is basically china and india <laughs> china is most of china is in the 30 to 60 north band and then most of india is in the 0 to 30 degree band even more like insanely there are a couple what i call the population zone major and minor Population zone minor is 27 degrees to 25 degrees north, which is about, you know, 1% of the latitude of the planet. That contains half a billion people, uh, which is about 6.7% of all the people on the planet live in that, you know, like 1%. If you expand out further from 22 to 36, you wind up with about 39% of the people on the planet and about like 7.5% of the latitude. So... Really, the main takeaway is that in terms of just straight looking at the latitude, it's pretty useless data because you have these huge, insane outliers. But it does, you know, sort of at least suggest that we have enough land still in Pangaea because of this convenient relocation to the 60 or 30 area that should be livable, that we should still be, you know, not at risk of like everyone just not having enough space to live. So now that we know there will be a civilization, what are the kind of the main differences that we'll have. The big one is that now there is technically an overland route from anywhere on Earth to anywhere else on Earth, uh, which is a big deal. For the most part, that was the the source of a lot of headaches, we'll say, and atrocities over history was colonization slash exploration. And with these overland routes that we now have from anywhere to anywhere else, hopefully, you know, me being, I'm going to say optimistic, Hopefully we can avoid a lot of that. You know, people will encounter other cultures more quickly because there won't be these oceans between them. And hopefully we'll have less disagreements because of that, which would be nice. The other big takeaway is that I started, you know, wondering, will people still go on these exploration missions looking for other places? And the answer is yes. Because if you think about it, the explorers who, you know, left Europe to wind up in the new world were looking to get to China. They were trying to find a water route so they have to do the really long overland route. So they're still going to do that. Problem being that now there's not a convenient other continent halfway there. Instead, it's just a huge-ass ocean. And it's basically guaranteed that anyone who tries to sail from one side of Pangea to the other is just going to die on the journey. Because it's way, way too far to sail with at least exploration era options yeah it would be it'd be a lot less it'd be a lot less in the history books if yeah columbus just like set sail to try to get the other side i was like yeah it was just farther than i thought and i didn't make it right well (laughs) and i think honestly in my opinion this is a win because the explorers pretty much all mega sucked so if they just all go off and die we're probably you know net positive overall honestly would we just have assumed that like it was infinite the ocean was infinite if we never make it to the other side i mean probably i'm sorry can we go back to ben just categorically saying all explorers in history sucked wait (laughs) hold on let me let me scale that back slightly (laughs) specifically specifically 
the explorers who sailed and went and, you know, did initial colonization of North and South America basically all sucked. That feels like a pretty blanket statement. That wasn't supposed right. to be a smallpox blanket joke, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Come on, it's not, it's not that much of a hot take. Like, <laughs> it didn't work out all that well, let's be honest here. Anyway, point being... Explorers are going to try to sail around the world and die. And yes, you're right. We probably are going to assume that the Earth is flat until we eventually make planes. Until we fly. Until we fly. Yeah, that's the answer. Don't even need planes. Just use trains. Well, but people still are going to want to ex- like people are still going to want to explore. People keep going off and dying. Would they try to fly over the ocean if they don't know if there's an end? Yeah, they would. Someone's gonna. Someone's. Someone would. Well, okay. So here's the problem: is that a lot of people would. It'd be really crappy early plays, and they would also die. So eventually, they might give up. I mean, eventually, someone's just gonna build a boat that's big enough to make it. I mean, it's not an infinite distance. I mean, I guess it's the same thing as outer space right now. Well, so so actually, that that brings up the real question: What happens first? We build a boat good enough to get all the way around the world, or we make it to space and see the planet is very clearly <laughs> absolutely the first one, and it's not even close. Yeah, it's probably true. Yeah, probably true. <laughs> like they went ar- like just distance wise, like the sailors would go like around continents without stopping. Sometimes, like they they could you can make a boat big enough with enough stores to to make it up. It's not like a you don't have enough tech to make a boat that can both carry its supplies and make... You can just make boats as big as you want. Well, I guess the question is, how much time would we spend building boats that could um, go ac- like go across the ocean if we thought we could only really st- stick to the shores? Yeah, some crazy billionaire is going to do it, though. Some Elon Musk, except he's a pirate. I couldn't think of a good pun in time. Um, <laughs> oh, there's got there's got to be one. Hold on. Uh, uh, maybe there's not one. <laughs> <laughs> Elon Musket. Elon Musket isn't that, bad. They actually. don't really use muskets, do they? It's not really parody though. Elon Sword Musket. Anyway, Elon Sword Musket. <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Elon Sword Musket is going to build a big boat and get around the world and not. Actually, I guess he would correctly re- decide that he's on the other side of the world. So cool good for him why don't we just say elon musk beard you can just add beard to make everyone a pirate yeah i didn't want to just it felt too easy anyway i guess my main takeaway here is that the population should be really really weird on our current planet and it probably wouldn't be as much so on pangea i guess but also more importantly explorers would die off and hopefully the world would be more peaceful yeah elon john silvers elon john silvers that's way better than anything we came up with sadly well that is, ex- it's just exactly as funny as something that he came up with. <laughs> Point. All right. <laughs> I guess I'm done. Chris, what did you do? Yeah, now that you, you've been upstage, Chris, it's your turn. You yes, earned the spotlight. I stole your spotlight. So Ben's answer kind of assumed that humans would be around during this, but I wasn't actually sure if that is true. So I wanted to kind of look into if humans would even like evolve at all if all the continents were just one giant landmass. And to look at this, I looked at Pangea as an example. And kind of just like went off of that. So Pangea actually started to break up in the Mesozoic era. And it's it kind of started in the early to middle uh, Jurassic period. And then it went into the Cenozoic area, era. So um, I'm going to start with land, just like all animals on land. So I found a paper. Uh, it was published in 2016. It's called The Fragmentation of Pangaea and the Mesozoic Terrestrial Vertebrae Di- Biodiversity. 
It was uh, published by some guy named Matthew J. Vavrick. He's a PhD and studies like fossils, fossil records and stuff. He made a model using something called species area relationship, uh, which is basically just looking at the number of species in like a given area of land. And his model showed that the terrestrial biodiversity doubled during the Mesozoic era, despite the actual landmass itself decreasing during the breakup of Pangaea. Actually, like in the beginning of the Triassic period, um, the largest landmass was nearly 123 million square kilometers, which was around 88% of the total land area. And then by the end of the Cretaceous period, the largest uh, landmass was around 27 million square kilometers. So like 20, around 22% of all land area. So it decreased a lot. Obviously, you got less big landmasses and a lot more moderately sized landmasses that were like more evenly distributed. And this actually caused what's called endemic species to sort of pop up. So and endemic means that the species are just like native to a landmass because they they kind of just adapt to that one landmass. So biodiversity on like an individual smaller scale for the smaller landmasses became less. But then like overall, if you look globally, biodiversity increased. And the reason for this is because animals who could once interbreed with each other in the big landmass they became separated and eventually they obviously they didn't breed with each other anymore and they became eventually incompatible with each other and created new species and stuff and this sort of like kicked off a boost in evolution because you get all these different species that are new and then just to like uh sort of verify this theory during the late cretaceous period the sea levels actually lowered again and it actually reconnected some of the separated land masses and as a result some homogenization started to happen in ecosystems and biodiversity lowered again. So you can see like the correlation there between large landmasses versus small landmasses and the number of species. So there's a, a pretty clear cause and effect thing going there with land animals. So like we like humans, we probably wouldn't like if you're looking at today, we probably wouldn't have evolved yet, but maybe sometime in the future we would evolve because we're still evolving it just didn't get that kickstart of lots of diverse species but that's on land i wanted to look at also marine life because i wasn't entirely sure how that would work because obviously all the ocean is still connected even as a big landmass or if the landmass is separated so i found another paper that studied this is called plate tectonic regulation and global marine animal diversity it was published in 2017 and they found that Marine life also became more diverse around the breakup of Pangaea, and they actually didn't really know why. They had no explanation. The conclusion of the paper is just that more research needed to be made, but they did observe that there was a correlation between the breakup and more marine species. So they did suggest that it might have something to do with like changing ocean or atmospheric circulation due to the shifting crust, but that was just like a theory. There's no like research or evidence to back that up so yeah the marine life would if if we were one giant continent then marine life would also be very homogenized and probably not as advanced you probably won't get like some of the more evolved species at least not yet so that's land and marine life but there are still plants i wanted to look at plants because i just wasn't sure what would, what would happen with plants exactly so 
found another paper. It was called Tectonic Driven Climate Change and the Diversification of Angiosperms. It's published in 2014. Can they just like publish like scientific papers, like just saying what they are without like 12 letter words? <laughs> well, it's got to sound fancy. Yeah. Do you not get your, do you not get paid for it if it if it doesn't like require you to look up three of the words in the title to understand what it is? Like, is it just gatekeeping? Like, you don't have to try bother reading this paper unless you know what an angiosperm is you peasant so the more the more complicated you make the title the more likely that people are viewing it for the journals just say yeah that sounds good enough and pass it on through. sure i'm not gonna back check it <laughs> yeah so if you don't know what an angiosperm is an angiosperm is basically just a plant that flowers so like any any plant that has a flower or like a f- fruit or anything like that is an angiosperm which is a lot of plants <laughs> Yeah, if you want a full list of them, you can go. You can go on uh, Angio's list, and uh, that'll that'll hook you up with with, you. with local, well-reviewed uh, angiosperms in your area. So um, they said that the CO two released from the continental rifts raised the overall temperature and climates, and then the breakup of Pangaea led to even more humid conditions and more rainfall, and that led to more arid climates and less or less arid climates and more temperate climates which led to more angiosperms. So angiosperms actually first appeared in the Cretaceous period, so they weren't they didn't exist before that, I guess. I guess before that most plants were just like ferns and conifers. Conifers are what's called gymnosperms, which means naked seed. So like anything that has a seed but like there's no fruit around the seed or anything, that's a gymnosperm. And then ferns are what's called a polypodiophyta. And those reproduce through spores. So that's mainly what was around before angiosperms came around. But once angiosperms appeared in the Cretaceous period, there was actually a huge boom in angiosperms. And now they make up like 90% of all plant species on Earth, including food crop. So angiosperms are very important. They play a huge role in a lot of things, including food. So... Agriculture is actually very largely dependent on flowering plants, and pretty much all f- like fruit and vegetables that we eat come from angiosperms. Now, the implication is that if, if Pangaea never broke up, then these angiosperms might have never come to be or be as popular as they are now. So what happens if we don't have these angiosperms? What are we going to eat? Because they're obviously very important. Now, when I was going further into angiosperms, I actually discovered that the Poaceae family, which is a grass family, are also angiosperms. And we did a whole episode on what if grass didn't exist. It was episode 93. And Ben specifically, I've been playing from Ben's answers a lot recently. <laughs> I feel so honored. He covered the Poaceae family and like what that actually meant. So he said that the Poaceae family includes like rice, corn, maize, wheat, barley, rye, and oats, which are all very important they pretty much all like we use them for a lot of things we use them to feed our livestock and stuff so what are we going to use to replace them if we don't have those things in ben's answer he said that we would replace them with potatoes because that was an option in his answer but in our answer potatoes are uh angiosperms (laughs) they are part of the solanaceae solanaceae family which are angiosperms. Chris gets paid. Chris, Chris is sponsored. He gets paid 30 cents every time he says the word angiosperm on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to be saying it more. <laughs> it's losing all meaning for me as, as you continue to say it. 
So he, if we can't use potatoes, he also said that soybeans might be a, pot- a potential solution, but soybeans are legumes, which are angiosperms. <laughs> <laughs> so what is not an angiosperm? Because every obviously there are a lot of things that are, but we need something that is not that is edible for us to eat or for like at least for it to be at the bottom of the food chain for other things to eat. Now, before angiosperms came to be, I said that ferns were a thing. Ferns and conifers were the the main thing. So I looked at ferns to see if ferns were edible. And there's what's called fiddleheads, I guess, which are ferns. I guess they harvest them before they, the ferns like fully grow and you can eat them. So that's an option. But the uh, the rise in angiosperms actually coincided with the decline in gymnosperms, which is what I mentioned before is like conifers. So I think that if the angiosperms are never rose, then the, the gymnosperms would be like the main thing. So you'd have a lot of conifer trees and stuff. And that includes things like pine seeds. So we'd have a lot of pine seeds and pine seeds are edible. So we'd be eating these pine seeds and these fiddleheads. I think mainly the pine seeds, though, and assuming that the humans actually evolved, they probably wouldn't have, but if they did, we'd be eating a less diverse selection of food that would be mainly based on pine seeds, and I've noticed a trend that in my answers, I'm basically just figuring out what we're going to eat. Last week, I said (laughs) we're eating bananas. (laughs) This week, it's pine seeds. So... We'll see what next week brings. You should you should do your prep after you've eaten dinner. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I'm turning into Ben. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> yeah, we, we were talking about the spreadsheets before. Imagine if Ben had that spreadsheet of every single food that I had last week. Oh, man. I would. Ooh, it'd, it'd be a fun <laughs> time. Don't give Ben that much data. Don't. Don't. It's a bad idea. All right. <laughs> I think with that... With our, with our pinecone-eaten caveman asses, we can move on to our uh, would-you-rather question. Okay, Marcus, are you ready for a would-you-rather question? I am. Would you rather stand in a long line for three hours or sit through traffic for three hours? Oh, sit through traffic. No question here, because sitting through traffic means I'm in my own personal vehicle space, which means... I can blast music. I can sing along to my music in the car. Also, I sit in a lot of traffic more than I stand in line, so it's kind of the evil you know versus the evil you don't. That's kind of my first impression. I guess you are sitting, too. Yeah, you can, like, sing along to your music and stuff. I don't know. It feels like a pretty pretty. It's like a pretty easy, easy choice, in my opinion. Do you have a compelling argument? I mean, so you... I don't know if you'd want to talk to other people. If it's three hours, three hours is a long time. You might want to start talking to people. You might make some friends. Oh, God, in a three-hour line? No, there's no friends to be made there, Chris. There's no friends to be made on the three-hour line. it depends on what kind of line it is. What are you waiting for? All right, I'm I'm going to devil's advocate here for the three-hour line. If it is a three-hour line, it has to be something that's worth waiting in line for. Or the DMV. Hmm. (laughs) Well, you can't talk to people at the DMV. That's that's down that way madness line. What if you're waiting in line for a movie that's about to come out that everyone's really excited about? Oh, like a fan thing, like a like a like an. You Avengers. have something in common with everyone in line. It's like the premiere of the Avengers movie. Yeah, uh, three hours is a real long time, though. Yeah, but like everyone's gonna be dressed up, and they're you're all you all like that one thing. Yeah, that's cool for like fifteen minutes, and then you have <laughs> another two hours and forty five minutes. Yeah, but I mean, this time is the same for the traffic too. Yeah, be like listen to podcasts or something. I don't know. It's not that big a deal. I mean, I, I did a five hour drive like basically an hour before we record this podcast and 
you know, I'm not upset about doing that again in a few days when I go back home. But ask me to stand at a three-hour line. I'm like, you're insane. I'm never doing that. The thing is, you're stuck in traffic. You're not actually moving. Oh, that makes it easier, actually. <laughs> if I could just be stuck in traffic, like actually not even focus on driving because it's just like barely moving. Well, I think the uh, what I'm saying is you still have your drive after you start moving again. Oh, man, I don't know. It, I'm, I'm so I'm so jaded to traffic, like having like, you know, grew up in New York by the city and then moved to Boston in the city. It just doesn't bother me. Waiting in line, I don't like, but driving does not bother me anymore. It's really easy. This one's a real easy one for me. I think it is for me, too. Okay. Well, I'm going to choose the line if it's an Avengers line. <laughs> Chris, you are insane. You are an insane. So, but I, I, feel like I, can't, I feel like you can't. So, hypothetically, let's say that there was, you're going to a show of an adventure of the Avengers. And you have the option of either waiting in line at your theater for three hours is close to you. Or driving somewhere that would involve being stuck in traffic for three hours to get there and go immediately into the movie and sit down and watch it. Which would you rather do? See, you still don't get that culture of like talking to all the people that have similar interests to you. Like people choose to camp out and do that kind of thing when a big movie is coming out. They choose to do that. No one chooses to sit in traffic. Three hours is a long time. I don't know. <laughs> people camp out overnight. They do way longer than three hours. Yeah, I think those people are crazy too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, no one does like choose to do traffic. Man, I can see. I can. I, I I guess I can see what Chris is saying in that if you are going to a thing, the line you're waiting in is specific to something where it's a event where you're gonna have a lot of in common with the people in line, and interacting with the people in line would be a generally positive. You could expect it to be a generally positive experience. It might be slightly better, but man, it like. I would rather wait at the entrance to the parking lot in my car for three hours. Like if the line, if if I was queued up for the same movie and I had to be either in line in a in a car line or a person line, I'd like to be in a car line. Right. That's that's <laughs> where I am too. And maybe that's just the millennial in us, like not wanting to have a social interaction ever. But uh, yeah, no, I can't. I can't. I like to. I like to devil's advocate, but I can't. I can't play both sides in this one. I'm just gonna sit in my car. I am too. <laughs> okay, I'm still sticking with the line. All right. Well, if you had to wait in line for something for three hours. One thing I could say would be worth it would be to leave a review for this podcast. But here's the thing, guys. You don't have to wait in line or wait in traffic to leave us a review. You can just click it on your on your device, on your phone, on your computer. You can just click. Well, it depends on what app you're in. But you can just click the leave a review button and leave a review for this show. You can also click different buttons that go into your email and if you click buttons that spell out absurd hypotheticals at gmail.com you can hit then more buttons that send us a question and we might answer that question on the show and then you something that you invented with your brain in that three hour line that you didn't have to even wait in is going to be answered on the show it's going to be great and if you want to hit the coolest button of all the buttons you can hit that become a patron button on www.patreon.com slash absurd hypotheticals. And for just $1 a month, you can get access to all our bonus content, which is the perfect thing to listen to. If you do have to sit in three hours of traffic or on a three hour line, it would take care of that. It wouldn't even be a problem because you would get to hear more and more of your three favorite podcast hosts. So those are things you can do rather than wait in a big old line or in traffic. Either or, it's your choice. The power is yours. But 
the other thing you can do instead of waiting in line is join us next week where we answer the following question. What if Earth spun 10 times faster? Thank you.